Welcome to the Union Jews Podcast. The UK's only All Things Union podcast, designed for your downloadable digital delight and appreciation. In this episode, social partnership is not a theory, it's a way of life, says ACAS chair Claire Chapman in an exclusive interview. Plus, Mel Sims asks, is the tide turning in the battle for decent working conditions in the hospitality sector? And Josiah Mortimer's Radical Roundup. Hello and welcome to Union Jews, the UK's only all things union podcast. I'm Simon Sapper and in this episode we have Claire Chapman, chair of ACAS, on her view of the world and ACAS's role within it. Social partnership, not just a theory but a way of life. Hear more from that coming up later on in the show. We've also got Mel Sims in her Thought for the Week slot, this time asking about hospitality workers. Is the tide turning? to get them a fair, better deal at work. And of course, we welcome back, both in word and in person, Josiah Mortimer with his Radical Roundup. First up, Mel Sims with her thought for the week. Now, the pubs are open across the country, both inside and out. Welcome relief for most of us, I guess. But... Have you noticed that they're a little shorthanded behind the bar or in the kitchen, tidying round after us as customers? Well, Mel Sims asks if the peculiarities of the labour market in the hospitality sector mean that a change for the better is coming for those who work in it. This week, I've been enjoying the opening of the hospitality sector in Glasgow for the first time for months. And I've even been to the pub, which has been really exciting. Uh, But while there's huge pent-up demand for um, hospitality from customers, the sector is in real crisis with regards to staffing. And I think that presents unions with some really interesting challenges and opportunities. What we've seen in the UK, very similar to the US, is a whole sector try and recruit both front-of-house and back-of-house staff all at the same time, and the inevitable pressures that that's put on uh, labour supply. But in the UK, we have two additional pressures. One is Brexit, which has taken away a significant potential pool of labour. Since the mid-2000s, it's been quite common that young EU workers can come to the UK, for example, to work for a summer season. And it's common that roles such as chefs have long recruited from overseas. So the the withdrawal from the EU means that that pool of labour can't easily come uh, to work in the UK anymore. And another pressure has been that a lot of students aren't in their university towns. So students often take hospitality work to add to their income and they often enjoy the flexibility that that hospitality work offers. Because they haven't all moved to their university towns because of COVID, they haven't been available to work in the same way. So all of this has culminated in something of a perfect storm for employers, but also potentially an opportunity for unions and for workers. Unions in the sector have been campaigning about a number of issues for for many, many years, including zero hours contracts, 
other forms of ultra flexible work arrangements, low pay, problems with sexual harassment and abuse, and generally poor working conditions. And it's certainly true that it's a sector that has some of the most flexible work and the lowest pay across the UK economy. And employers have historically had a ready supply of labour that allows them to largely ignore those kinds of calls for improving working conditions across the board and to ignore uh, some of the campaign work that unions and other campaign groups have been doing in this area. I think it's an interesting time to ask the question, is the tide about to turn? And I can certainly see pressures in that direction. It wouldn't all even require spending lots of additional money, which I think is interesting. And I think there might be scope for employers to differentiate themselves in the local labour markets by offering small and incremental changes to some of those wider issues such as shift flexibility and things like that. I'm certainly hoping this is a moment where the combined pressures mean that employers really look at how they can improve their employment practices across the sector as a whole. Many thanks indeed for that, Mel. Thoughtful and thought-provoking as ever. And of course, although we tend to think of pubs, bars, restaurants, when we talk about hospitality, it is a very broad sector. It includes travel, tourism, recreation, uh, and so on. And you can just walk down any high street at the moment in Britain and you can see by all the closed-up business premises just what an impact COVID has had on this sector in particular and, of course, for the people who work in it as well. And as regular listeners to the podcast will recall from a previous episode, Usdor, the Retail Workers Union, is spearheading the Save Our Shops campaign, which has as its objective the rescue and revitalisation of the UK high street, of course, including the many hospitality outlets that you'll find along it. And that can be accessed by going onto the Usdor website at usdor.org.uk. Now to our special guest for this episode, Claire Chapman. Claire is chair of ACAS, the Advisory Conciliation and Arbitration Service. She's previously had stints as HR Director of BT and Tesco, sits on a number of boards and is the first ACAS chair from a business background for quite some time. You'll recall her immediate predecessor was Brendan Barber, formerly General Secretary of the TUC. And before Brendan, there was Ed Sweeney, who came from the finance union sector. And before Ed, there was Rita Donaghy, who came from what is now Unison. So an ACAS chair with a business background, you have to go back quite some period of time. So how is the organisation dealing with the challenges of COVID, both in terms of the services it provides and the people who provide it? What is the future for arbitration conciliation and conciliation in the UK economy with far and higher being kind of an extended flavour of the month amongst certain employers? How can ACAS live up to its strapline of being devoted to making working life better for everyone in Britain? Well, sit down, pin your ears back. Uh, We've got a fascinating 25 minutes or so coming up with someone who is arguably in one of the most influential IR positions in the country. Claire Chapman, Chair of ACAS, thank you so much for spending time with us on the Union Dues podcast. You're very welcome. Well, thank you for the invite. In fact, I listened to the last podcast that you did with Brendan Barber around ACAS, and I found it informative both about the man and about the organisation. So really happy to participate. Well, that's great. Well, that <laughs> that, that Union is really one uh, podcast. That, that sets a quite a high bar. So let, let's, try and hit, let's try and hit that. And, and I suppose the, 
the, the starting pl- point has to be inevitably uh, COVID and and how that has impacted on the work of, of ACAS, both in terms of keeping the service going and in terms of the issues that ACAS has had to deal with. Uh, and what, what, are, what are your reflections on that that period of the pandemic, which, of course, saw you come into the role? I, I recognise that. For sure. Well, I'll make a general point and then some specific points about ACAS. I think probably as we've talked about before, Simon, with regard to other organisations we've worked with, I think the pandemic has been a very harsh teacher. I think it's seen big shifts in how we all live our lives. But as often is the case, I think tough times often bring out the best in people. And what I've seen more generally is quite bold experiments as new ways of working almost became everybody's business. And I think as I reflect on ACAS, that's equally true about ACAS. We saw a very, very sudden and sharp increase in demand of services. And just to sort of put some scale to that, last March, we were initially running a helpline of around three and a half thousand calls a day, and that shifted to about 15,000 a day. So you can see that At a time of strain, people were looking to ACAS to find answers at difficult times. And we'd moved from, I think, about 5% of home working to 100% in one week. And, I mean, again, when I look at the coverage of individual conciliation, that increased by about 100,000 people as well. So, you know, you can see that what the organisation had to deal with is what the, the countries had to deal with writ large. And I think that probably the big story of ACAS is that we've coped very well. You know, we managed those spikes in demand. And to everybody's credit, I think the focus remained on how can we learn quickly enough in order that we can respond to that that very very significant increase in demand. Yeah, that sort of agility factor. That agility factor is really really important in keeping services going because, of course, I mean, ACAS itself will have had a number of staff who were unable to to work in they normally as they normally would because they've either got COVID or they're shielding or they're they're impacted in 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 that way. And it seemed to me, as a as, a, as an as an outside observer, that people people resort to suppliers that they know and trust. And ACAS is a really well established, trusted brand. So whereas people may have just kind of casually gone online pre pandemic and thought, where can I get employment advice? They will want to go to a trusted source. And it seems from what you're saying, well, either that was the reason or there was some other reason. But nevertheless, ACAS has had. I hesitate to use the phrase a good pandemic because there's not much that's been good about it, but it's but it's been able to continue to provide really good services at scale. Yeah, it's interesting um, reflection. I, I concur. I think, you know, what staff and managers have told us sort of over in the focus groups we've done recently is that they've appreciated the increased autonomy. They've liked being trusted to respond to new customer needs. And there's something about the flatter hierarchies and the sense of empowerment, which people are now saying to us, let's make sure that we don't lose that. What we can't continue to do is is operate under sort of emergency circumstances. You know, we've got to find a way of making this very sustainable. And I think as came out well in your podcast with Brendan, I mean, I think the investment in technology at ACAS has been happening over a number of years. And there's a very nice case study that's just been published about a very fruitful relationship we've had with the Microsoft 
cloud team where what we were able to do was to re-platform so that all that increase in volume we were actually able to accommodate as opposed to trying to work that all out at the last minute. So I think credit to the ACAS team, credit to Susan, credit to Brendan and the council for actually recognising that a trusted organisation needs to continuously renew itself to make sure that increases in demand can be responded to so i think mm. that that was happening a long time before the pandemic so is that is that going to be the key to acas remaining competitive and relevant i mean I'm, as i say i'm conscious that you you took up the, the this role in the midst of this pandemic what are your kind of reflections to date about the strengths and challenges facing acas as, as it goes forward well, one of the things that we have done is taken this past year, not just to respond to the increased demand, but also just take a step back and say, look, we are partway through the public health challenge, but we've now got the economic challenge of recovery. And as ACAS, given that we are trusted and respected, then what we need to be able to do is be ready for the next phase. So we did take time. I'm glad to say that uh, we found that our, the, the purpose of ACAS is very clear. You know, we exist to make working life better for everyone, specifically by promoting healthy working relationships and also addressing disputes and conflicts when they occur. And that purpose is solid. But And it also gave me great pride when I looked at it with the council and we found that for every pound funding we receive, we're saving £12 in terms of, of, of taxpayers' funds because of the, the conflict that we're able to avoid. And that doesn't take into account the emotional and psychological pain of, of, of conflict. So anything that we can do to help resolve disputes has a huge benefit. But what we did find was that to remain competitive, back to your question, there are there are four things that we believe we need to do, and we're now on the case to do all of those. One is to grow our reach, specifically about improving the access to our services. You know, that increased demand shows that, 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 that people do know to contact us. But there are increasingly newer parts of the economy, the gig economy, parts of the economy that are not well represented by employee bodies, by, 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 by union membership. And how can we reach into some of those uh, smaller businesses? How can we reach into some of those areas that wouldn't necessarily know to pick up the phone to us? So that's number one, growing our reach. Secondly, resolving disputes more quickly and effectively. I do remember when I was in HR in organisations, the pain it causes when it takes years to resolve a yeah. dispute. You know, oh, yeah. that that just can't be right. And so what can we do to resolve disputes more quickly? And then thirdly, given that the world of work is really shifting, and not just because of the pandemic, but because of all the forces that were at play pre-pandemic, we want to be able to forge a consensus amongst all our partners around what are the first order issues that really need new thinking and thinking that doesn't compromise employees, doesn't compromise the ability to provide work, doesn't compromise the ability to be able to deliver to customers so we've got to be able to do all of that so therefore what's the the consensus on the future of work and then fourthly as a number of organizations are doing how can we do that in a way that we make our services and our our focus 
um, mindful of difference, inclusion, and, and specifically around fairness. And so those are the four things that we'll be dialing up over the course of the next four years. Yeah, and I note, of course, that those are the four main strands in the new strategic plan covering the years from now, 2021 to 2025. And, and I, I was struck by a number of things in, in that strategy document. Um, of course, ACAS is facing a particular challenge in, in, in the sense that it sometimes calls itself a workplace expert. But of course, the whole notion of what is a workplace is changing dramatically. Uh, and I noticed in your introduction, Claire, to the to the four-year plan, you spoke about the historic opportunity of ACAS to, to shape the future of work. And, you know, that I agree, there is a historic opportunity, but ACAS is not the only player or even the dominant player in, in the game. So where is, where is the beverage principle or the beverage persona uh, c- coming from? And then in terms of uh, that that third of your four points, forging consensus on the future of work, I agree, absolutely a key issue given the way work itself is changing. But as Martin Smith, who's the national organiser at the GMB, who is heavily involved in the GMB Uber deal, told me just recently, the legislative framework is so out of date already, even though it was just last renewed barely 10 years ago, that there's a real challenge in legislative terms as well as as well as practical terms how does ACAS navigate its way through all those all those rapids what are the the sort of milestones that say the council has set for for ACAS to show that progress is being made in the right way and in the right direction yeah again a a lot a lot of points made there I mean I I my my apologies my apologies but I think you've laid out the territory well I mean the first point I'd respond to is I do think that ACAS is a dominant player and, and I do think that that brings responsibilities with it and you know if I go all the way back to when I was growing up Actually, it was the Industrial Society, if you remember the Industrial I do. Society. I it do. It was, was often the place that employers and trade unions would go to, to get a safe place to say, let's work difficult issues. And then I think that became the Work Foundation and, 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 and. And, you know, it, it strikes me that at a time that's such a big inflection point, having ACAS as a a trusted body to bring together social partners in such a way that we can both agree what are the the first order issues and then how are we going to respond to those in such a way that we can be proud for the next generation, that it wasn't a set of, of unhelpful compromises that got us to a place, but actually it was you know, it was rethinking. And I, if I was to give an analogy, Simon, I, the reason I am optimistic that that can happen, I do remember, you know, when I was in health and it was at the time that, that Patricia Hewitt was Secretary of State and, you know, a lot of reforms were going through and there was a recognition far, far better to create the social partnership forum that brought employer bodies in health and trade unions in health and ministers in health and civil servants in health around a table to say, don't let's foist on the on the health service a whole lot of, of changes that are not well thought through. Let's take it upon ourselves to do some joining up so that we then cause far less disruption to the people using the service and the people providing the service. I do sense that at this historic moment that there is a role for ACAS to bring parties together in such a way that says, 
let's truly use the world's best thinking to work our way through this, as opposed to we just fumble through it. I, I love that idea, Claire. I love that the way you phrased it, that that, that it's not a question of, un, of creating unhelpful compromises, but creating genuine consensus. And of course, the social partnership model that underpins ACAS, as it does for a number of, a small number of other bodies, such as the Low Pay Commission, in which we've, we've, we've both had involvement. I mean, I imagine that is a crucial a structural point to delivering that sort of vision. Yeah, it is. And, you know, as you and I know from our, our work together on the Low Pay Commission, it's not a theory. It's actually a way of life. And, I, yeah. you know, and I don't it, it's not something that it, it's not something that can be built overnight either, because it's really it really requires a lot of trust. And if I think back to my time at Tesco, where we really worked hard at building a partnership model between ourselves in management and trade union team. Actually, it, it required hard choices. So I do remember at one point I was saying that it's really difficult to have a, a real equal partnership if training levels are different. Mm. So we agreed that what we would do is joint training between trade union officials and managers at Tesco, because at least that way we could face into the situation that we were we, we, we were looking at with a, with a shared language, with a common set of beliefs, and with good data. And I, you know, and I think that one of the, the new challenges that I think is really evident with ACAS is the ability to share our data, because my goodness, ACAS is, has got some very big data wow. around what workplace needs are, share that data with social partners in such a way that they can use that to help them adapt their services in the same way that we're trying to do with ourselves. Yeah, yeah, indeed. I mean, if we if we take those principles, um, which I think are axiomatically, you know, the beneficial and value-add and, and, and agenda-setting, um, and then we look at, say, specific areas of, of pressure in the industrial landscape, such as uh, fire and rehire uh, practices. Now, I know ACAS was asked by the government and delivered a, a really comprehensive review of the history and the, and, the, and the use of fire and rehire, and I commend that to to all listeners. If you want to, if you want a a really comprehensive insight into what is actually happening, as opposed to what the headlines are happening. But nevertheless, that is a how how would the principles we've just discussed? How can they be brought to bear on fire and rehire situations where you could argue it's symbolic of a failure of of investment, a failure of, of communication, uh, an intense pressure that employers feel they have no other way to to, to res- respond to. Yeah, well, I, again, I, you know, talking specifically about where the tensions are, I do remember at the beginning of the pandemic, ACAS, the TUC, and the CBI came together, and you know, the very difficult subject of redundancy, some guidance was was put together jointly, which showed that. There are many, many, many things you need to do before you consider redundancy. And these are some of the ways through it. And it was a it was a genuine attempt to say redundancy may be the outcome in some circumstances, but there are many things to try before you get to that point. And it was a way of trying to help organizations and people work their way through this. I think fire and rehire is a is another example of this. I think that it's it's clear that. It's completely unacceptable to use threats of fire and rehire as a negotiating tactic. Completely unacceptable. But there, as as ministers are are describing, there is a role 
when all other avenues may have been exhausted, particularly if it helps to protect jobs. And I think it's where you've, I think that where ACAS and the social partnership model can really play out is let's tease through all the things that you can do that means that you don't need to use fire and rehire. And also let's put the guidance that shows that if the bottom end of the labour market are using it as a negotiating tactic, then let's do everything we can to to establish practices that shows that that is completely wrong. Right. I mean, a part of the what came out of the review of the literature and the review of the practice of, of fire and rehire uh, that ACAS carried out was that in some cases there's a view that actually there isn't time to exhaust all these all these avenues. The economic circumstances or commercial circumstances are, 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 are too desperate. On the other hand, as a negotiator, I've heard that that argument used when the pressure is not actually, you know, it's, it's self-imposed pressure in, in a way. Nevertheless, are there things that, that you think unions could do to improve the speed of decision-making in those circumstances? Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? I, th- this is where I think that there is some, there's some false thinking sitting in there somewhere because actually assuming that you can rush to fire and rehire and there not be consequences is really not to understand the nature of industrial relations, I think. You know, yeah, I'd agree. Trust, <laughs> trust matters hugely. And I think to have... So I... I, I'm glad that ACAS has been asked to produce some guidance on how employers can explore options before considering fire and rehire, because I do believe that there is a lot to do. And also, in the interest of building trust, I I do believe we're in a different place potentially than we were even 18 months ago. So I'm sure you saw with interest that in the social attitude survey, trust in business has ticked up. And I suspect it's because employees genuinely saw employees genuinely saw their employers in many instances caring about their safety, caring about involving them in, in changes to ways of working, and all those things that makes working life, you know, easier and safer. And I do sense, certainly from the boards I'm on, there's a real desire amongst many employers to try and make sure that that continues as we come out of the pandemic, including on things like fire and rehire. Therefore, I do sense that there's a, not everywhere and the bottom end of the labour market, you know, may well require being held to account. But I do sense that there is a different mindset. And I think trade union officials can, can push for that mindset that was shown during the pandemic to be or the, the, the height of the pandemic to be employed. Well, in the strategic plan, the 21 to 25 strategic plan, the, the fourth plank of that is, of course, about uh, embracing difference, increasing inclusivity, but about creating fairness. And I do think the notion of fairness has crept into the zeitgeist, has crept into thinking in industrial relations and in society as a whole. It's why, for example, the Marcus Rashford campaign on on, on free school meals was had such traction. It's a, There are notions of fairness that sometimes business government don't don't see immediately but the public see them and the public the, the public drives those issues so i think I, I mean i would share your hope that that's that that is for the future yes yeah and, and you know on that i think that fairness equally applies to are we being fair to our customers you know and so it, it may well be that part of what we'll need to tease through is as, as companies have tried hard to keep themselves afloat 
afloat by finding new ways to, to generate revenue, new ways of serving customers. That is going to require some new ways of working, which will require, you know, adaptability on behalf of uh, employees and uh, representatives. So I think fairness pushes upstream responsibility, not just in the way that employees are treated, but in the way that customers are treated, in the way that stakeholders are treated. And I, you know, one of the things that, as you know, I co-chair the Purposeful Company with Will Hutton. And, you know, we we were, we had a, a very interesting call last week with some heads of, of big companies and also some of the biggest asset managers from some of the biggest, biggest investors and also academics. And it's clear that the challenges around sustainability, around fairness, around purpose, around employee voice. These are the issues of the moment. And let's make sure that we maximise our response rather than minimising it. Yeah, I mean, I I would agree. And of course, each one of us plays different roles. We're all stakeholders plugged into different networks. So inevitably, what is good for, say, a workforce will also be good for consumers because the workforce are the consumers. Yeah, often, well said. Often, Claire. I mean, we could we could talk forever about this, I, <laughs> but but I'm conscious that that we only have a fixed amount of time. As as a kind of final final question, you are of course the first chair of ACAS for some time that's come from a business background as opposed to a union background. Are there particular challenges of being the first ACAS chair from a business background for some time? And if so, what are they, and how do you meet them? Well, in many respects, I think we've probably touched on that earlier in the podcast. I mean, I suspect that in terms of mindset, if you had Brendan and I on the phone right now, it'd probably be quite difficult to work out who was from business and who was from the trade union movement. I mean, because partly what you're looking for is is people that understand the tensions right across the, the, the value chain and work hard with good intent to be able to reconcile some of those differences. That's what Brendan helped me to do when I was in the HR role in, in, in Tesco. And it's it's what I learned, you know, you need to do both in, in, in the commercial roles I had as well as in health and equally now with ACAS. So I, I my first point would be I doubt whether you can see a huge difference in mindset. But one of the things that I do think I can bring that yeah, I do for for where we are right now in in ACAS is is useful. Is I do understand the business environment, and as we're trying to improve our reach, resolve disputes more quickly, and really forge a consensus on on the world of work, I think that it's at a time when having those relationships within business is a helpful way of bringing the right people to the table. But I doubt whether the conversations that we'll be having when we're there would be very different than if it was somebody with a, a more mainstream trade union background sitting in the, the chair role. Well, Claire, it's been a great pleasure. And I, I wish you and ACAS every success as you move towards the goals you've set in your strategic plan. Well, thank you, Simon. And actually, I'm just going to use this moment to put a huge thanks out to everybody who works for ACAS and all our relationships with our social partners. You know, you kindly gave me the opportunity at the outset of the the, the podcast to say, you know, what had gone well within the, the pandemic with regard to our services. And that is down to the hard work of, of everybody that puts their shoulder to the wheel for ACAS. So huge thanks. Well, I do hope you enjoyed that, listeners. I think Claire is always good value, and especially 
given her role, you know, such a, an influential role in industrial relations, employee relations in the UK, always worth talking to and, and worth listening carefully to what she says. I was very encouraged by her commitment to social partnership. ACAS, of course, run on a social partnership model between business academics and union representatives. Great to hear the confidence and optimism about the role of ACAS going forward, about how effective it is in terms of saving money through resolving or avoiding conflict, although that kind of rate of return, £12 saved for every pound spent, similar sort of economics as Union Learn, wasn't it? And it didn't do Union Learn any good. But also the belief that ACAS is a force for good and is a very powerful uh, force uh, for good. What's one quote? I just noticed it down as as, uh, as I was chatting to her. I do sense that at this historical moment, there is a role for ACAS to bring parties together in such a way that says, let's use the world's best thinking to find a way through this. No doubt ACAS sees itself justifiably as a big hitter in, in, in this area. Also some, some good, you know, principled stuff. You know, it's completely unacceptable, I think Claire said during that discussion, didn't she, to use threats of fire and rehire as a negotiating tactic. We wouldn't disagree for a moment, would we? I mean, there are some points of, of, of divergence, of course. The stuff that Claire was quoting from the Social Attitude Survey about building trust with employers, that doesn't match the stories that I hear that we've heard on, on this show over the past series or so about employers not always stepping up to the mark in the way they should during these very difficult, unprecedented uh, pandem pandemic times. But the ACAS view of the world is one that is very relevant for anyone who's involved or interested in industrial relations in the UK uh, at the moment. And we certainly got a clear view from Claire during that discussion. Now it's time to welcome Josiah Mortimer back to Union Juice. Welcome, Josiah. What have you got for us this week? Thanks, Simon. First up on this week's Radical Roundup. A new poll has revealed strong support for Unite's campaign to secure trade union rights for directly employed Amazon workers and workers across the gig economy. A poll of 2,000 UK workers conducted by Servation reveals that the public view Amazon workers as key workers by a margin of two to one. Almost half of respondents say they've changed their view of Amazon workers and now value them more than they did before the onset of the pandemic. More than three quarters of respondents believe Amazon workers should be able to join a trade union if they choose to, without interference from the company. Public opinion is in stark contrast to Amazon's anti-trade union tactics. Amazon stops any attempts by workers to gain a collective voice of their own, Unite says. The companies failed to sign global agreements that recognise the right of all workers to a collective voice. Unite's now calling on Amazon's Jeff Bezos to sign up to a Declaration of Neutrality, which includes commitments that recognise workers' right to unionise. Last week, Unite leadership candidate Howard Beckett stepped down from the race to back fellow left-wing assistant General Secretary Steve Turner. Turner will face workplace candidate Sharon Graham and moderate Gerard Coyne. Next, we're seeing the return of protests to politics in the UK. Trade unions, climate groups and social movements will march on Parliament this weekend for a national Unite Against the Tories demonstration. The protest is organised by the People's Assembly and backed by the Fire Brigade Union, Bakers Union, National Education Union, Extinction Rebellion and many other leading activist organisations. Thousands are set to protest against what they call a corrupt Tory government, calling for faster action on the climate emergency, an end to the policing bill and a ban on fire and rehire tactics by companies, among 12 demands. In Parliament this week, Labour has demanded that all workers be given the right to flexible working ahead of the lifting of restrictions, amid rumours of a planned government consultation on flexible working. 
On Thursday, Number 10 said the government had no plans to introduce a right to work from home. Labour's Deputy Leader and Shadow Secretary of State for Work, Angela Rayner, has demanded that the government set a default presumption in favour of flexible working, rather than just the right to request it. Labour says the right to flexible working will help people enjoy a better work-life balance after the pandemic, save time commuting and spend more time with their families. The government dropped its promised employment bill, which Labour argues should have been an opportunity to legislate to guarantee flexible working rights. And in strike news, the University of Liverpool has told staff taking part in a lawful marking and assessment boycott that it will withhold 100% of their wages, despite staff being willing to carry out a majority of their duties. University management said they will withhold wages until staff complete marking all assessments affected by the industrial action and said it considers all other work staff carry out to be voluntary and not worthy of payment. Members of the university and college union began the boycott last Friday in a long-running dispute over the university's decision to sack 24 staff from the Faculty of Health and Life Sciences during the pandemic. Staff previously took part in three weeks of industrial action which ended last week. The UCU says the university's withholding of pay is egregious with the marking boycott coming after 90% of members who voted in a ballot backing industrial action to fight the university's plans to slash teaching and research jobs. We'll keep you updated on what's next in this campaign. That's all from this week's Radical Roundup. Thanks for listening and catch the full Radical Roundup on leftforward.org on Wednesday. Thanks very much, Simon. Back to you. Well, thanks very much indeed, Josiah. Some, some really interesting nuggets in there, as usual. Liverpool University. Oh, my word. Come on. Come on. I mean, yeah, this this is not the way to resolve a dispute uh, with UCU members, honestly. I mean, it's, more, it's a bit like taking like a small smouldering heap of stuff and pouring some paraffin on it. It's just, you know, just, it's, you know, please think, think again. And... That People's Assembly demonstration, I mean, that's interesting. I mean, what, I mean as we emerge from the pandemic and we get back into the habit of demonstrating, uh, that's one thing. But also, if you look at the people who are participating uh, and leading the roll call in that demonstration, it's a really quite a comprehensive coalition of, of, of organisations. And if that range of organisations can collaborate on organising a demonstration, what else may be possible may be necessary uh, as we go through the coming period. Well, we're nearly out of time for this episode, but there's just time enough for me to let you know that there's a companion blog that accompanies this episode, accompanies every episode. In fact, you can find it on the makesyouthink.com website. You go over to makesyouthink.com, look in the blog section of that website. You'll find it there at the top of the queue, gives you all the background information, the signposting, the links that you need to follow up any of the issues that we've discussed over the last half hour or so. If you want to get in touch with the show directly, you can email us at unionjews at makesyouthink.com. You can find us on Twitter at jewsunion. Please do Join the conversation. We'd love to have your input. And special thanks to a couple of listeners who were very public in their comments and appreciation for our last episode, the special with Martin Smith of the GMB talking about the Uber deal. Jennifer McCary particularly said this was, said the show was definitely worth a listen. We agree. Why wouldn't we? And, and Michael McNeil described the conversation as insightful. So my thanks to Jennifer and Michael for those positive comments. And please do feel free to add to them yourself. If you could rate the show on the podcast platform of your choice, that would be very much appreciated. You can also, of course, subscribe to the show from that self-same platform and you won't miss a single episode going forward. 
Union Jews is part of the Labour Radio Podcast Network, which is a portal through which you can access over a 100 union-related shows from across the world. You can find them at labourradionetwork.org. Do pay them a visit. So my thanks to Claire, to Mel, to Josiah, and particularly to you for choosing to spend some of your valuable time in our company. It's been great to have you along. We'll be back with the next episode of Union Jews in a couple of weeks, around about the 6th of July. But if you can't wait and you want more trade union podcast pleasure, then you might like to check out a couple of unions podcasts that I've had the privilege to help out on. That's the Royal College of Midwives, rcm.org.uk. They're on their sixth episode now. And launching next month will be a new podcast from the Prison Officers Association, POAUK.org.uk. Now, obviously, both podcast series are directed at the membership interests of the unions in question, but just let me tell you, reassure you, that you don't need to be a midwife or a prison officer to get something out of those two podcast series. Both of them well worth checking out. So until the next time, do stay safe, look after yourself, let's look after each other, and I will see you next time on Union Juice. Bye for now. The Union Dues podcast is presented by me, Simon Sapper. It is a Makes You Think production.